Um, we're taking a little bit of a break this morning from the book of Zechariah and to kind of mark uh, the wonderful moment we've just shared in of, um, of such a number of folks coming into membership. We're, we're just going to be thinking a wee bit about what it means to be a church this morning. To help us think that through, if you'd like to open John 17 and look down to verse 20, that would be wonderful. I think it's page 1085 in the church Bibles. John 17, and we're going to read verses 20 down to the end of the chapter. This is Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, meaning the message of the apostles, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you give me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me, me I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. John 17 is probably, I think, one of the most influential and one of the most important passages of the New Testament. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, gives one wonderful, enriching prayer that's this whole chapter. And so if you want to ask what was on Jesus' mind before he went to the cross, you look at John 17, because this is the, the final words we have from him before he's arrested and taken off and crucified. And we see that he prays for three different groups. He, he prays firstly for himself in verses one to five of this chapter. He prays, as some of us I'm sure have prayed anxiously before an interview or a doctor's visit. Jesus prays for something far greater and more strenuous that he is about to go through, praying that God would glorify him through the work he's about to do. He then prays for his disciples. And the reason he prays for his disciples is that they have placed their hope in Jesus. They have left their salaries behind and have followed this Jesus, who they think is the Messiah, who will put everything right and fix all the wrongs, and they're about to see him killed. And they, the disciples were not brought up going to Good Friday services and then getting ready to open Easter eggs on Sunday morning. The disciples did not know this. The one who they have placed all of their hopes on, who have sacrificed their careers for, is about to die. And he prays for them because he knows how distressing it will be for them. And he prays that they would be sanctified by the truth of God. Your word is truth praying that the truth of who Jesus is would sanctify them, would make them right, would make them cling closer. And he prays for this final group, 
section that I read, where he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them, so for them alone, meaning not just the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He prays not for the disciples, not for those who are following him at the minute, but he prays for those of us who, though we have never seen Jesus, believe in him. Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross is for you. It's for us, for his church. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus, on his way to the cross, his final petition is not for his family nor his friends, but it's for you. And this morning, I want us to look at that prayer. And Jesus prays for three really simple things. He prays for unity, he prays for a purpose, and he prays for a mission. He prays for a unity. If you look down with me in verse 20, he says that I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that all of them may be one. Hopefully we know that whenever Jesus prays us, what he's striking at is one of the core things of what it means to be a Christian is that you cannot be a Christian alone. No man is an island and no Christian is a church in and of himself. There is something about Christianity that requires a gathering together. Because if Jesus had expected us just to go off and form our own little quiet time by ourselves and ignore every other Christian on the face of the earth, he would have said, let them go off and do their own thing. But he doesn't say that. He says he prays that they would be one, implying that we would know other Christians and have such a a strength of bond with them that we would be united with them the way the Father and the Son are united in all of eternity in the Trinity. He, in, he is thinking that we will be in such a community and be, he's praying that we would be bound together in such a way. And this is littered throughout the New Testament like we read in Galatians 3, 27 to 28. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Implying that The wonderful news we believe as Christians and the wonderful good news is the gospel is that no matter who you are, race, creed, color, or tongue, we are all one in Christ Jesus this morning. As we bow our heads in prayer and sing praises this morning, we are joining voices with people across the globe. As Tom was showing in the children's address, that small little church made of mud, bricks, and thatch, worships the same Jesus as we do this morning, and we are one with them. In churches this morning in Ukraine, there will be people praying, and there will be people in Moscow praying as well to the same God, and God will hear both of their prayers because the gospel transcends every single barrier we may want to put in its place. We unite with people who we may not share hobbies with, who we may not share incomes with, who we may not support the same football team as, although personally I don't get that one, why that would ever need to be overcome. But the gospel binds us together with people who we would never imagine ourselves being alongside in any other form. The gospel makes us one because it binds us to the one body, because it binds us to our Savior. 
And when I say that, I think one of my fears is that we just think, okay, great, unity, tick, check the box, done that, haven't fought with anybody at church this week, um, haven't created any great arguments. And we fail to see, actually, this is far more than, you know, I'm happy to get along with everybody and don't want to rock the apple cart. Because this is a sort of unity that is countercultural in a way that I don't think we realize it's countercultural. We live in a culture that loves to talk about unity and community, but in the reality of it, our modern culture is incapable of unity and community like this sort of, this sort of community modeled here. There was a political philosopher, Patrick Deenan, who's professor at Notre Dame University over in the States. Um, he released a book a few years ago called Why Liberalism Failed, and as the title suggests, it's a wonderful, cheery book. Um, but he really begins just unpacking where we are as a cultural moment. Unpacking where we are. I, I, and he kind of makes a comment that what we are seeing is the, the decline and the death of all of the truths that our culture holds to. And one of the things, one of the truths that he highlights is the fact that in the modern West, we are very strongly focused on the individual. We have individual rights, individual freedoms. We are focused about being your own self, not being defined by, by where you've come from or where you grew up, but going off and forming your own identity and your own self. That sense of freedom and self-authorship. That's why, even though I am the eldest son of a farmer, I am not currently sitting in a tractor seat. Because in the Western world, we don't necessarily follow into the careers of our fathers. Instead, the Western world, it's all about freedom of choice. You can choose what job you have. You can choose where to live. We even can choose our friends and our family members. And the constant choice that we have that is bombarding us each and every day, creeps into every aspect of our lives to the point, and this is where Patrick Deenan highlights this in the book. He says that even our relationships don't become bonds and ties to one another, but they become choices because we're looking around us to see if there's a better offer. Some of you, maybe some of the younger folks, you'll have tried to organize stuff with friends, and one of the most frustrating things you will have noticed is that none of your friends commit until the very last minute. Have you ever noticed that? It happens to me. Maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe they just don't like me. But, but this is becoming quite a big social phenomenon, and the idea is, is that we are waiting because we are in tune to think, well, I need to wait and make sure I get the best deal, or I want to choose, make sure that my choice is the best choice, so you wait to the very last minute in case a better option comes along. Or those of you who have, who have teenage kids and your kids come home saying, you know, mom and dad, I have no friends. And the reason they're saying that is because in a culture that's constantly thinking, well, I need to look for a better deal, how can you have a friendship or a deep, meaningful relationship whenever the culture that has shaped you has constantly said, you need to be looking out for something better? Can you manage the damage this does, that idea of waiting for a better deal, waiting for a better relationship, waiting for a better friendship, waiting for a better spouse, does to us? And it's not just something that's out there, it's something that's in here as well. How many of us are waiting for a better church, waiting for better fellowship, waiting for better house groups, waiting for better preaching, waiting for better music? rather than realizing we are called to a radical sense of unity. We are bound 
to one another here in Maze. That's why we've just made vows. We're bound to one another in a unity that calls us to love one another sacrificially. We are to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. We have a unity that is countercultural to the core. And it will cost us. But it's a beautiful unity because it models something. And this is where we see the purpose of it. The unity that we model as a church reflects the God that we worship. If you look down with me, it says that, that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. There's this idea that whenever we love one another in the church, we are reflecting the Trinity. And whenever I say the word Trinity, I, I know a lot of people have went, right, turn the brain off, they were going to lecture mode. Because I know it's three in one, it's mysterious, and we won't know all that. And we can often think of it as something that's really high up and cerebral and doesn't change us. But look, bear with me for like two minutes, and hopefully I will show you that there is a wonderful beauty expressed through this passage of the Trinity that we reflect as a church. One of the things we believe as a Trinity is that the Father is, Father, or the God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we were all catechized, equal in power and glory, same in substance. The idea that God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always loving one another, always glorifying one another in a inseparable bond that cannot be broken by anything. There has never been a point in all time of history where the Father has not infinitely and ineffably and mysteriously delighted in his beloved Son. There has never been a moment in all of time where the Son has not glorified and adored and loved the Father. There has never been a time in all of time or history where the Spirit has not declared the praises of both and found his delight and joy in both of them. There has never been a moment where the three have been separated. There has never been a moment where they have been divided. They've never had a quick tiff with one another behind a closed door. They have never whispered, muttered breaths behind one another's backs, but they have loved each other equally and eternally and wonderfully, three in one and one in three. Why does that make a difference to you and me? It makes a difference between you and me because if you look down, our, our hope is not that we are in ourselves, but our hope is that we might be in Jesus. That we might be, as we read in Ephesians, adopted into the Godhead. And what does it mean to be adopted into the Godhead? Well, it means we relate to God the Father the same way God the Son relates to God the Father. And why, why is that important? Why is that special? Because if there is only one Son of God and we share in His Sonship, it means that Whenever you are adopted, if you are a child of God this morning, if you are in Jesus this morning, if you are trusting in him, the relationship and connection you have with God the Father is the exact same relation and connection that God the eternal Son has with the Father. Because there is only one type of sonship. In God's family, there are no favorites. Jesus is not the oldest son who's always showing us up and doing better in exams. Rather, we share the exact same relationship and connection with God the Father as Christ the Son has it. 
And the reason why that is such a wonderful thing for us to believe as a church is that the deeper we get into that truth, the closer we get to one another. Um, Eric Alexander, who was a, a, a Presbyterian minister over in Scotland, has a wonderful illustration where he says, can you imagine a shepherd standing in a field and the sheep are, are lining around the outside of the field? And the shepherd calls the sheep to himself. It is impossible for the sheep to get close to the shepherd without getting closer to each other. And friends, it is impossible for us to get close to Jesus without getting close to each other. And as the closer and deeper and tighter we cleave into our Savior, the more we will find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The more we will find ourselves bound to one another because we are bound in him. And this is why it reflects the beauty of the God that we worship. Finally, we see that Jesus prays for a mission. Just as we are to reflect God, he then says that whenever we do this, we are to do it so that the world may believe that God has sent him, that God has sent Jesus. I don't think whenever we talk about unity, that there are many people outside of our doors who think that the issue with Christianity is that it's split into a whole pile of denominations. Very few of my non-Christian friends find that as something that um, is a hurdle for them. Instead, what they find as a hurdle is whenever we backbite, whenever we gossip, whenever we're hurtful and harmful to one another, and there can be sometimes a temptation where whenever we're trying to witness for Jesus, what we think that we need to do is convince people that, you know, our congregation's really different from every other congregation because, you know, we get right the things they get wrong. But that is not what we're called to do. We are called to share this wonderful good news that we have in a way that makes people believe that Jesus really was from the Father. So if you are in your office this week and somebody begins going, giving off about the church down their road that has done X, Y, or Z, rather than maybe chipping in and saying, well, my church does this, tell them something wonderful about Jesus. Tell them something wonderful about our Savior. Because we are a community of broken people. We are a community of hurt people. And we will make mistakes and we will slip up and we will annoy one another to no end at times. But that's not what saves us. What saves us is our perfect, blessed Savior, Jesus. And it's his name that we glorify this morning and no other. It's him that we worship. And it's him that we want people to believe in. Not that we are good, nice people, but our Savior is perfect and ever-blessed and has given all for us, even to death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son that we may delight in him. Lord, help us to be united to him, to cleave to him and to cling to him in a way where people no longer see us, but they see you. For it's by your name that, he, that people are saved. Amen.